Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And up next, we have a feature from one of our regular contributors, Stephen Rosiniak. His story is about Stephen's daughter, Tracy, entitled Tracy's Kitchen Center, one of his earliest published pieces. To read this story and its backstory, visit stephenrosiniak.com. Here's Stephen sharing his story. 
It all began with our neighbor's decision to hold a garage sale and asking if we would like to participate. Now, my wife Karen saw this as a great excuse to clean up around our house, while our kids saw it as an opportunity to make a little extra money by selling items they no longer wanted. Happily, they began sorting and choosing and getting ready for sale their old books, their toys, and their other once-upon-a-time cherished possessions. My daughter Tracy decided to sell her long-abandoned Fisher-Price Kitchen Center. But little did I know just what her decision would soon mean to me. Tracy was three when she became the proud owner of the center, and she wasted no time getting down to the business of pretend cooking for her dolls, her stuffed animals, and of course, for her daddy. Imaginary meals consisting of plastic fruit served with tiny imitation canned goods were presented on little blue plastic plates for our make-believe consumption. Pretend coffee was brewed atop the cartoon-like representation of a stovetop and served in tiny teacups, Tracy remembering as she poured, just milk, no sugar, right daddy? Happy hours spent creating imaginary culinary offerings continued for some time until slowly these delights gave way to newer creations consisting of honest-to-goodness ingredients. The kitchen center was eventually replaced with her newest favorite childhood domestic device, an easy-bake oven. But as time went by, the days of miniature bake creations soon faded into obscurity. Real dinners and real baked desserts made in our real kitchen replaced the make-believe world created with the help of her pretend appliances. The Easy Bake Oven was placed in a cabinet awaiting further orders and the kitchen center was removed to a remote corner of our basement. Something else was happening during this time, but for a while, I just didn't seem to notice. My little culinary creator was growing up right before my eyes. And the thing is, I never saw it coming. When the two-day garage sale was over, the unsold, unwanted items were gathered up and deposited curbside as trash. That night, one by one, these pieces were scooped up and by morning, all that remained was the kitchen center. Now, Tracy viewed its rejection with a nonchalant, oh well, but I took it far more personal. How could I have been so insensitive as to toss out such an important piece of my daughter's childhood? Slowly, I began to realize why her blue and white plastic kitchen center suddenly mattered so much to me. Perhaps the disposition of the center curbside represented nothing more than the reluctant acknowledgement of my own mortality and the admission that I was in fact growing older. 
As she blossoms into the early stages of womanhood, I grudgingly concede the reality that Daddy's little girl is growing up. And it's to this end, I remain a prisoner, trapped within my own internal battle of conflicting opinion, bouncing back and forth between the desire to forever hold on to my little blue-eyed blonde baby dear and my fervent wish to set her free. How strange is it the paradox that we as parents anxiously await and indeed celebrate our cherub's earliest childhood achievements and then we wait for the next. Chubby little legs taking their first uncertain steps, first words, first tooth, first grade. I mourn the passing of the days when I was still the slayer of her dragons, the great daddy and hero. I miss the simple things that meant so much to her, like running under a lawn sprinkler on a hot summer day or making snow angels after a winter storm. And I miss her snuggling between Karen and me after a scary dream had chased her to the security of our bed. Oh, how I miss the days of tickle monsters and timeouts, and of all those bedtime readings of Clifford the Big Red Dog, and of course, Goodnight Moon. It's during these private moments of quiet contemplation that I've come to realize it's best to remember the past, indeed, to celebrate all that was, and then look forward to all that has yet to be high school and boyfriends, driving lessons, the college years, beginning a career, walking down the aisle, becoming somebody's mommy. But for right now, my little girl is 14, going on 40. I kind of like this time too. On the final night before its scheduled banishment into trash eternity, Tracy's Kitchen Center, it vanished. Another beautifully performed piece by Stephen Rosiniak, and special thanks to Faith for doing such a great job on the production. Tracy's Kitchen Center, here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell a lot of stories about our nation's past. And this one next, well, it's a story, well, part of a story that you know, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, but the more interesting story, which is the Great Chicago Recovery. Experts agree on where that fire started back in 1871, 
a little under two miles from downtown Chicago, just to the southwest. But how it started remains an open question. And so we bring you Tim Samuelson, the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, to tell us about this area and dive into the mythology of how the Chicago fire got started. It was an area of small shacks and cottages of largely Irish immigrants. The fire itself began in the barn of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary. For the scale of Mrs. O'Leary and her existence in the neighborhood, she was an entrepreneurial businesswoman. There was more than one cow in the barn, and she had a you know, modest but substantial business. And, of course, the thing that's amazing is that for years people told this story about her at night milking the cow, the cow kicking over a lantern, setting the barn afire, and then high winds and dry conditions go and burn down a significant part of the city. Well, if you have a dairy business, you don't milk your cows at night. In fact, usually at the time the fire started, and we're talking about, oh, maybe about a quarter to nine in the evening, you're likely asleep in your house because you have to get up early to milk those cows. And again, there's multiple cows in the barn. So it makes for kind of an interesting, ironic thing that poor Mrs. O'Leary gets fingered. But where did the fire start? You bet it started in their barn. And ironically, what didn't burn in the Great Chicago Fire? The O'Leary's house. It made it through just fine. But the fire took off on a path that would go to the northeast, jumps the Chicago River, headed right for downtown Chicago, which was a fairly built-up metropolis by 1871 with substantial buildings built out of stone, brick and iron fronts. Many people talk about downtown Chicago being largely wood buildings. That's another myth that kind of needs to get solved. The buildings of Chicago were of size and substantial architectural character and quality comparable to other cities of that era. But when you have the conditions of dry conditions, high winds, those stone walls will crumble. A dignified front made out of cast iron would melt like butter. And it wasn't a case of one building setting fire to another. It was the case of such an intense heat that things would just spontaneously combust. Let's talk a little bit about Chicago and what caused the fire in terms of Chicago's growth. Because in 1840, Chicago was basically a, a small Midwestern town. I wouldn't even call it a city. Talk about the growth, the meteoric growth from 1840 to 1870 that set the conditions under which a fire like this could have even happened. Let's go back to, let's say, the 1830s or the 1840s. What was here? Not much. In fact, if you were here in 1830. People argue about how many, but it might be 50 to 100 people. The buildings are just little shacks along this meandering little river off of Lake Michigan. But it was the perfectly located swampy backwater because as a country is at that point starting to grow west, 
Chicago was the strategic location located on the chain of the Great Lakes that could connect to the waterways of the east, and everything and everyone heading west would funnel through Chicago. So Chicago is the perfect place for anyone or anything to get anywhere. So you go from a mud hole in 1830 with just a handful of people. You start to get a few thousands of people in the 1840s, modest little buildings. By 1870, you have a major metropolis of over 300,000 people. It becomes a headquarters of commerce and manufacturing. It was a place that when you had the combination of the waterways meeting the rails, you could bring raw materials in, transform them into something else with a large labor force, and ship them out conveniently anywhere in not only the country, but in the world. Let's talk about the night of the fire. How long did it rage? How much of the city did it consume? And what did the fire spare? The evening of the fire on October 8, 1871, was in the center of a really tough drought. Things were really dry. So the fire does break out in the barn of the O'Leary family. There is some bungling on the part of how the fire was reported that delayed firefighters in getting to the fire to extinguish it. However, the conditions were such that with the wood buildings that surrounded the O'Leary barn, the high winds and the dry conditions, it's probably can be said that the fire was almost unstoppable from the start. The fire races through the wood buildings of this immigrant neighborhood less than two miles southwest of downtown Chicago and then carries through in kind of a wedge. And, well, the fire didn't destroy the whole city, but it took out its whole central business district heart. The imposing stone, iron, and brick buildings of down Chicago were totally consumed. There were wood details in downtown Chicago in terms of ornamental mansard roofs, wood paving blocks, But for the most part, the buildings were fairly substantial. But the interiors are largely made out of wood. The total heat totally combusts them. So the fire starts, let's say, a quarter to eight in the evening. And you have, by one o'clock in the morning, it is burning downtown Chicago. And there is the courthouse right in the central square that is basically in flames. And then it races across the main part of the Chicago River, burns out a significant part of the north side of Chicago, burning out to almost a triangular wedge that would be on the north side, almost near what's Fullerton Avenue and Clark Street today. But all the city didn't burn. The south side of Chicago, that was a significant part of the city, was hardly touched at all. The west side of Chicago, which was also a significant part of Chicago, was hardly touched at all, except for that wedge 
that burned uh, from the start of the fire at the O'Leary barn. And also, there were areas of the north side and the farther reaches of the north side and to the west that didn't burn at all. Chicago was able to recover fairly quickly after the fire because the one thing that the fire could not destroy was Chicago's perfect location that made the city thrive to begin with. And you could get anything you wanted to rebuild the city by the same waterways, the same rail lines coming into the city that could still deliver the goods for the city to thrive. And there were substantial parts of the city that were untouched by the fire, where the businesses that once had their offices in downtown Chicago could take temporary quarters. So you had businessmen who had, you know, elegant offices in downtown Chicago. The ruins were still smoking, and they were making arrangements to get quarters in old boarding houses south of downtown Chicago and reestablish their business and get to work rebuilding the destroyed city. Didn't take long. Didn't take long indeed. When we come back, we'll find out how this all happened. We continue with Tim Samuelson here on Our American Story. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of the Great Chicago Fire and, more importantly, the Great Chicago Recovery. And we're talking to cultural historian and the guy who knows just about all there is to know about Chicago, Tim Samuelson. Let's talk about the damage caused by the fire and the extraordinary recovery. We had 100,000 people who were homeless, 17,000 buildings were destroyed, and 300 people were killed. Tim, how did the people of Chicago, their spirit, play into this city's recovery. I can let you in on a little secret about Chicago that's not often talked about, and it's something that I think is a matter of pride, is that for all of its growth and prosperity, Chicago is still a tough little can-do Midwestern town in spirit. And so people who came to Chicago came here with the idea of making a buck. The people who came to Chicago in its early growth were the outsiders who didn't fit in to uh, old established societies. So Chicago quickly became a place that was like undaunted by any kind of challenge that you could imagine. They could build anything, and there was the incentive to do it. There was nobody to tell you not to try a new way of doing things, and what wound up happening is these new way of doing things that sometimes the people out east kind of laughed and sneered at wound up changing the standard way people did things. So this was an innovative hub. So now you've got the central part of the city, a smoking ruin, a large part of the north side, people homeless, people just rolled up their sleeves and got together and worked to build things as quickly as possible. One of the first buildings built in the downtown area, and the downtown was still smoking in rubble, is William Kerfoot, who was a real estate man, builds a wooden shack, which he called the first building in the burned district. And he had a sign on it, hand-painted, that said, All gone but wife, children, and energy. That's the Chicago spirit. And it wasn't long before, even into early 1872, and just months after the fire, new buildings were rising that replaced the old ones. Ironically, the size and the scale of those buildings wasn't that much different from the ones that were there before. But then there's an unusual phenomena. Now, people came for the new opportunities after the fire, 
Chicago grew in a scale like it had never before. The downtown area, which was largely confined into a small geographic area defined by the, the features that gave Chicago growth, the lake on one side, the river on two sides, rail yards to the south, didn't give a lot of room for development of new office space. Many cities can grow sideways. Chicago couldn't do that. The downtown after the fire was built up with all these elegant four- and five-story buildings. They didn't have elevators for the most part. But Chicago was proud of these wonderful Second Empire stone fronts. Chicago was reborn. They would talk glowingly of these new buildings that arose in 1872, 1873. There was even a big depression, and they kept on building. But... By the 1880s, these same buildings that Chicago was so proud of as a symbol of an all-new city were too small for all the businesses that wanted to be there. These same buildings were being knocked down within 15 years. 15-year-old buildings were being called old and obsolete. And these innovative Chicagoans raided the toolbox of the Industrial Revolution goaded by the real estate people and the landowners to make buildings taller in taking things like metal framing, perfecting elevators into these amazing high-speed vehicles of vertical traffic. Chicago creates the skyscraper. The first skyscrapers arise in the mid-1880s on the site of buildings that only you know, 15 years before, people were saying we're so wonderful and modern. So the fire actually set in motion a series of chain reactions that made Chicago not only rebuilt, but even regenerate itself over and over again to make it the city that it is today. And indeed, the population in 1871 was 300,000. It jumped to 500,000 in 1880. And by 1890, it had catapulted past the 1 million mark, a triple increase from the Great Chicago Fire. That's, it's unimaginable today, Tim, that something like this could be done. Nobody could believe the growth of the city. And the, the old cities of the East shook their heads in disbelief. In fact, they would kind of look how to disparage the city as some kind of, and, and looked at things like its architecture as some kind of raw, crude kind of work. It was often a simplified architecture that was very direct in expression of materials. Well, this is the birth of modern architecture. It was happening here. The birth of a skyscraper happened here. It didn't happen out east where cities could grow sideways. And in population, Chicago not only grew in terms of people arriving in Chicago after the fire, but it began in the 1880s to aggressively annex adjoining towns, making that part of Chicago itself. So you have this behemoth of a city in terms of population and growing geographic size by 1890. And much to the surprise and perhaps anger of the old established cities of the East, when it was decided to have a world's exposition 
on the event of the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Americas, cities out east thought they had it buttoned up. Who got it? Chicago. And the world's Columbian exposition showed Chicago not only as a city that had suddenly grown up in a place of smokestacks and stockyards, but a city of culture and achievement that was there before the world. Indeed, the Chicago School of Architecture and so much more in art and music. I want to read one thing to you, a final point, and get your reaction. It is from British novelist and journalist Mary Ann Hardy, and she was an international writer who wrote about the recovery. We expected to find traces of ugliness and deformity everywhere, crippled buildings and lame, limping streets, running along forlorn, crooked conditions, waiting for a time to restore their vigor and build up their beauty anew. But Phoenix-like, the city has risen from the ashes, grander and statelier than ever. Talk about that. It's absolutely true that Chicago had reinvented itself, and it's unusual to have the center of a large metropolis suddenly built anew from scratch all at once. A typical downtown of an American city would consist of buildings of different scale and quality from a long timeline of their history. Here was something that not only is rising from the ashes all at once, new and modern, but the matter of pride, and therefore trying to show the world that it was indestructible, that there was a quality to these buildings. And so you looked at it, it wasn't just someplace built out of necessity or makeshift quarters. These were elegant, modern buildings, and it occupied the whole of downtown and also of the areas that were in the path of the fire. And you've been listening to Tim Samuelson, and he's the cultural historian of the city of Chicago, and he's right about the quality of the buildings, but all of that, it all represented the quality of the people and the quality of those old Midwestern values. The story of the great Chicago recovery here on Our American Story. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. And we continue with Our American Stories and with a story from one of the top car collectors in the world. Miles Collier is the founder of the Revs Institute in Naples, Florida. Our own Alex Cortez got to interview Miles at Revs. And today we hear from Miles about his own story with cars. The only thing I will say about my racing career is that years later, I was accosted by a representative of the ASPCA, which is the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Automobiles, and they suggested that I probably shouldn't be driving anymore. <laughs> I thought that was cruelty of animals. No, uh, it's cruelty of automobiles. You don't know the ASPCA? They lurk around racetracks and then they find you uh, doing mean things to your car. They say, stop that, son. You ought to be on the beach. <laughs> I'm totally and completely facetious. The, the, the point being that I am not uh, the embodiment of Tazio Nuvolari. Not that I was terrible. I wasn't terrible, but I just you know, drifted away from it. My, my high point was I was... Uh, awarded the first SVRA Driver of the Year award. So even the blind pig eventually finds the corn. The thing about cars is that they have the unique property of reaching out and grabbing the susceptible person by the throat. The point being a sociology researcher whose materials I read basically said cars pick the people that are interested in them, not the other way around. And that's not necessarily true of golf or fly fishing or flying model airplanes or any of these other things. Cars have this property where analogously we think 
of wind in the whittles. Remember how Mr. Toad, the first time he saw a car, all of a sudden his eyes started rotating in his head and as all he could say was poop poop or whatever it was and he was just completely blown away by the automobile. Well, that is literally how automobiles attract their following. So what was my St. Paul on the road to Damascus event? Well, uh, is all I can say is you know, my dad was a racer back in the day. Sadly, he died in 1954. But I remember some years after that, when my family had moved back to New York City where I was going to school, one weekend or something, I came across a box full of old road and track magazines. And I pulled them out and I started flipping through them. And I, I can recall even now there's one article on a Jowett Jupiter. Now there's a terrifying confection. A Jowett Jupiter is a particularly nasty English confection with a four-cylinder water-cooled horizontally opposed front engine. And the Jowett mark was prevalent in its last gas were prevalent in the UK in the 1950s. And their high-performance sports car version was the Jowett Jupiter. And some small voice in the back of my head said, now it's time to get interested in cars, never look back. So long roundabout way of saying that cars reached out and grabbed me, they did it through the medium of magazines. Well, I think the way people get involved in cars is idiosyncratic, it depends on the person. And uh, as a former girlfriend of mine said, Miles, you can over-intellectualize anything. That was a relationship that was not going anywhere. <laughs> Uh, I can over-intellectualize anything. So I got interested in cars, first of all, because of their obvious glamour, romance, attractiveness, uh, all the things that everybody loves about cars. And then the more interesting thing to me was the context and the connections. So context and connections, which I have been able to push to the extent of what you see today, where we have one of the world's great library collections and you know, one of the world's great car collections and all kinds of things that combine together allow us to really understand the automobile as a human and social and cultural phenomenon, which is where I'm particularly interested. And that's why I have ended up writing a book called The Archaeological Automobile. But, but the, the, the point is the archaeological automobile is essentially about thinking about the automobile as material culture. Material culture are the things that mankind produces in ordinary life and ordinary use. And material culture varies around the world as a function of the culture from which it comes. And so something from Japan is going to be different from something from Germany or something from South America. But it is basically the material remnants that we leave behind as our species travels through time. The automobile is completely underrepresented in the academy. It is completely underrepresented among our normal cultural institutions for reasons that absolutely no one I've been able to find can articulate. The automobile is just something that nobody wants to talk about. You know, I, I did an enormous amount of reading for my book, and the gist of academic commentators who comment about the automobile, and they're few and far between, is that 
we find it inexplicable. Normally, the amount of published materials roughly is congruent with the importance of the thing being written about. This is not true of the automobile. It is enormously important and nobody writes about it. In fact, it's generally viewed as one of those subjects. It's a third rail of the academy. Okay, you write about automobiles, you're immediately suspect. You know, I, I guess I would say the problem with the automobile is it's way too stimulating, it's way too interesting, it's way too charming, it's way too engaging, and therefore it can't be serious. So, you know, we can talk about the evolving morphology of Barbie dolls over time and the self-perception of women as a, you know, sociological paper, but we cannot talk about the automobile in any way, means, or form. And now, you know, it's changing a little, and there are some academicians out there. I, I mentioned Dale Danifer, who did sociologic research on how do car enthusiasts become car enthusiasts. There are people, you know, academicians who are writing about the influence of the automobile on society in various ways, but generally the, the, the focus is on the automobile as a social change agent, because that lets you deal with the automobile in the abstract. It's a social change agent. We don't need to get into it anymore. Okay, so now we can talk about society and how society changes with this amorphous, undefined thing, social automobile social change agent. See what I'm saying? No picture of the automobile is created there, no analysis of the automobile exists. We just talk about its, its influence. So that, that seems to be relatively safe. If you start talking about the automobile as material culture, boy, are you in trouble. Because that's where, you know, everything suspect happens. So naturally, my book's about the automobile as a material culture. <laughs> And, and you know, it's a hugely important piece of our material culture. The thing we need to remember about the automobile, and, and, and much other material culture is the same way, is that it has a function, it has a nominal function, and, and, and the automobile's nominal function is personal mobility and mobility of goods. But it has other functions that are implicit, and one of them is social signaling. Human beings have evolved over millions of years to be sensitive to other human beings across vectors of power, status, and wealth. People are social animals. You stick them all in a the room, they immediately want to know what's the pecking order here. And we have a zillion signaling modes to do that so that you know, it, it, it becomes a, you know, a natural and easy thing to do. And it's everything from fashion Okay, you can, you can have a you know, $150 suit from Walmart, or you can have you know, totally custom silk blend, blah, 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 and, and you can tell the difference. So it, you know, it's clothes, it's houses, it's furnishings, it's you know, all of those kinds of things. And one of the most effective has always been transportation. So the man on the horse was always in a superior position to you know, all the peasants that were standing around pulling on their forelocks and making nice noises to him. The glittering carriage with a perfectly matched pair and a coachman and a footman you know, pretty much let everybody know where you stood. The automobile did the same thing. It does it to the same thing today, right? 
You see some beat-up Toyota Hilux with a bunch of garden equipment in the bed of the thing. It's like, oh, okay, I kind of know what the story is there. And it's next to, you know, some Porsche 918 hypercar, right? It's like, okay, I, there's a, if that's not social signaling, I don't know what is. I mean, you know, people say, oh, no, that's just a, that's a terrible thing. I, I got news for you. I don't care if it's terrible or not terrible. We have evolved that way. Genetically, we are sensitive to status and power and wealth because evidently it, 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 it worked over tens of thousands of years. So whether it should be or it could not, forget that. I mean, that, that's, that's a mugs game to play. And you've been listening to Miles Collier, the founder of America's Best Car Museum, the Revs Institute. A special thanks to Alex and to Robbie for bringing us this piece. Miles Collier's story here on Our American Story. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.